I'm here with Coach Boo Smith on episode number 49. We're almost to episode 50 on the podcast here. We've done a bunch of them. And uh, thanks to everyone who's been tuning in. Hopefully you've been enjoying the episodes. And thanks to Cesare for all his tech work. We're getting creative in here a little bit today. But um, Boo, I'm really excited to talk to you today about really everything that you do and your time at Gilman and your time at John Carroll and UVA and pretty much everything that we can get to and cover today in in the time that we have here when you're as old as i am you've got many different experiences <laughs> <laughs> um so boom maybe let's talk a little bit about your hobbies because i know you're a, you're a man of many different hobbies i see you on the sidelines of the lacrosse games with your camera I see you out there rollerblading all the time how did you get into sports photography it's always interested me about you um i think it deals with the art history aspect and you know coming out of um, college as an art history major I was looking for a way to um, show my artistic talent because I'm not a painter (laughs) and um, I started very early with um, wildlife photography and then um, I had two lovely young ladies and as they matured and started playing sports in high school and college um, I started recording the games and was getting some reasonable success with my shots. You know, I'd go to their games and take pictures of everybody on the team, and um, it was a way to uh, recognize my daughters as well as the team. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great hobby, and I've seen a lot of your pictures from this year in our lacrosse team and mm-hmm. some of the action shots. How, how have you been able to perfect that craft and kind of get better at it? What's that process been like? You know, curiously, um, when, when I started photography, I subscribed to a number of photography magazines. And just through osmosis, looking through them, you get an idea of what's a good shot. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you can see um, what's effective and what isn't. And um, I, I think it's become subliminal, you know. Um, when, when you're lined up and getting ready to uh, push the button, you're anticipating that right moment. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to anticipate you can't wait for it because it's too late once you catch it. Right. Now, with, with a cross, I'm a little bit lucky having coached it for over nine, no, almost 30 years. Um, I can anticipate what somebody's going to do. Yeah, that's true. And so um, every now and then, yes, they do roll back when I expect them to. Mm-hmm. And every now and then they drop the ball. <laughs> <But> <laughs> You're always ready, though, and it yeah. does help to know the sport and being able to anticipate the next move. And Yeah. So how did you get into lacrosse? Lacrosse has been such a huge part of your life, and you're obviously an outstanding player at Gilman and at UVA, and we can get into some of those memories that you have playing the game. But as a young man, as a young boy, who first introduced the sport to you? How did you get involved with it? It was was very interesting, Um, actually. I started in baseball, and I was playing baseball. It was a cold spring day, as usual. And um, I think I'd struck out three times and maybe had a couple of errors. And I looked at the field next door, and all these people are running around having a blast, you know, and they're playing lacrosse. And um, my my sisters had actually played lacrosse, so it wasn't totally foreign. And um, I said, that's it. And I traded in my glove for a stick, and um, that was the start. Mm. I I never had a choice like that. My dad... I don't think I played one inning of T-ball, baseball, anything. It was just 
from the start. From I was given a stick. Well, Dad was a baseball player, and he tried to get me to be a baseball player. But when that grounder bounced up and hit me in the forehead, that was it. <laughs> yeah. Um, how about at Gilman? Were there were there coaches that really helped you along in the sport of lacrosse who who played a huge impact on you as a player at the beginning of your career? The, the JV coach was um, Graham Menzies, and he was a very good coach. He, he um, connected with the students well and was a good teacher. So when I'm trying to learn the game, he was the right person at the right time. Mm-hmm. Um, on varsity, um, I was. Um, it was George Chamley who, through his deanship of lacrosse coaching, imparted a lot to us. Um, a, a very good defenseman and an excellent guy named Furlong Baldwin would come out to practices. And so I would get his expertise as well. So, um, then believe it or not, um, I had an accident. We, we can't go into it in too detail, it's too long. But I had an accident up at camp and uh, Boys Latin counselor um, was responsible for that accident, and he felt very guilty. And he heard that I was picking up lacrosse, and he was an all MSA defenseman. And he would come out to my um, house on the weekends and help me, hmm. um, which was really good. Hmm. So you got some private lessons. And I some, got some private lessons. Yeah. Tutoring. Tell me a little bit about Chanley as a coach, because I only really know the name from practicing on Chanley Field and some of the stories that I've heard. But mm-hmm. what was he like as as a coach and a mentor for you? Um, once again, you know, I saw him more as a head coach because you know, as defenseman, you'd be split off. Um, he was extremely well organized. Um, he, he knew the game very well. Um, and obviously he stuck with plays that had been tried and true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and as a player, were there certain memories from your time on the lacrosse field that really stick out to you or certain stories maybe from your time playing <laughs> lacrosse at Gilman that really w- were the best memories for you here? Uh, th- th- there was one that was sort of interesting. Um, how much was the best memory but it stuck with me. Uh, we're playing St. Paul's for the championship, and they had a crease attackman who was the best crease attackman in the league and was scoring four or five goals a game. And I was a wingman, and I liked to roam. I, I, I like ground balls. Yeah, you're um, king of ground balls. Well, <laughs> um, so somebody told me I still hold, still hold the Virginia record for a defenseman yep. at 260 for a career. And uh, 15 against Army. But anyway. That was 82? 72. 72, sorry. When you played Army in the quarterfinals? Yeah, quarterfinals. But, um, no, as far as the the memory goes, um, I had to sit on this guy. I had to sit in his back pocket. Mm -hmm. And it was driving me crazy. You know, I see everybody out there going on. And it was, you know, like two minutes left game, three minutes left game, and the ball squirts out to the wing. And I succumbed. I went flying out there after it. They picked it up. And guess who was all alone by the crease? <laughs> My yes. man. And he scored the win- a tying goal. A tying goal. And I would be carrying that as a bad memory forever if um, Teddy Bauer, a wonderful midfielder at WNL, didn't score the winning goal. I believe in overtime. Is that championship game or it, it decide the championship? Wow. Yeah. So. <laughs> awesome. Um, 
So, but I learned from that. Yeah. Well, it sounds like he was cherry picking a little bit. That, yeah, oh, you better how, believe it. That's yeah. what you know. Just he never there. left the crease. Never left the crease. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and seventy two was the year that you won the championship at Virginia. Correct. Correct. Seventy two. So that game against Army, that was the quarterfinal right. game. And curiously enough, in, in the semifinal, we played Cortland State. Mm-hmm. You know, um, back then, it was upstate New York, and they had gotten a tremendous number of you know, good players. And their record was such that it got them into the playoffs. But they were, were they Division One then? Or was yeah, that, they were Division One. They were then. Division One. Yeah. They had, had a really, really good attack. And not to brag about our defense at um, Virginia, their attack hadn't played our defense, mm-hmm. and or defense like it. Yeah. So when when you were at Gilman, what what was the process like of going to Virginia? How did you decide on Virginia? I, I don't like you with the lacrosse. I don't think I had a choice. Um, my fathers, my uncles, everybody going to Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you grew up, there was really only one college, and. Um, so uh, applying to um, Virginia was obvious. Best player or best player you played with or against as mm-hmm. a college lacrosse player at Virginia? The best player I played against was um, a guy named Jack Thomas, and he played for Hopkins. And um, in that vintage, he was um, the, the best attackman in the country. And... Um, our style somewhat meshed. He was extremely methodical, didn't have tremendous speed, but if you made a mistake, he scored a goal. Mm-hmm. And I didn't go for a stick. I played position and um, had some success against him. But he, you know, I knew that if I made a mistake, he, he was going to get a goal. Um, who were some of the other teams in the early 70s who were Virginia's top competitors? competitors because interesting enough like army was was up there and yeah. Cortland State and you had Maryland and um you know um Cornell had was arriving right um they actually wanted in 70 my freshman year when we should have won it would go on undefeated and then um in the first round of playoffs didn't didn't show up mm-hmm. and lost to Navy in the first round but um Cornell made a big run in the in the mid 70s and they were very good. Who was your coach at, when you were at Virginia? Um, guy named Glenn Thiel. Glenn Thiel. What was he like as a coach? Um, I've heard the name. Controversial. Yeah. <laughs> controversial coach. Yeah. But you still had s- success when you were there. He did. Uh, technically, though, if you look at the talent we had, yeah, we, we could have won it four years in a row. Um, we beat the national championship team every my four years there. You know, and one at one of them. Hmm. So we were sitting on a lot of talent. Yeah. A lot of wow. talent. And um, lacrosse grew up with it. I mean, you you played a little bit baseball, but for the most part, you, you had a lacrosse stick in your hand. What about squash? When did you start picking up squash and getting into that sport? I, I used that at, at um, you know, it's, to get in shape, it's, it's not like, fun to go out there and run. Yeah, you know, it's a great. I'm not sport. one of these people. You know, I don't like being by myself. I, you know, I can't anyway. And squash is as far as exercise exercise go. In one hour, it's outside the best. of wrestling, out, you can't get any better exercise than a good hard game of squash. Mm-hmm. And so I um, started playing that in college. Just getting shape for lacrosse. Hmm. 
and then was very fortunate there were two courts in the Bel Air area, maybe 10, 10 minutes from my house, so I could continue to play after college. Yeah, perfect lifetime sport to work on your quickness and conditioning, and it only takes an hour, right, to, yeah. to get a good sweat in. And, and the mental aspects of squash um, really, really can teach you um, concentration, you know. Um, you, you can't just go out there and go through the motions. <laughs> you got to be thinking. Right, right. Definitely applicable to the to the sport of lacrosse. Yeah. Although sometimes people don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, so when you got out of Virginia and you studied art history at Virginia, what what was your thought process like for the next step? How did you kind of figure out that you wanted to get into the world of education and teaching and coaching? My, my mother had been a teacher, and of course, come, going to Gilman, I had many role models that I admired. I'd also been a counselor, camp counselor as well. Um, I went to a camp up in Maine for 12 years as a little kid and then six years as a counselor, and that falls right into teaching. Is that Tecumseh Camp? or uh, Actually, it was called originally Moose Trail Lodge, and then it became Moose Cove Lodge, they switched locations. It was a Baltimore-based camp, and... Um, in the mid eighties it went out of business. Hmm. But um it was a wonderful summer. <laughs> how'd you how'd you get back and find your way back to Gilman School? Um coming out of college, um there was an opening at John Carroll for a wrestling coach, a lacrosse coach, and a history teacher. And obviously I fit that very well. So um I started teaching at John Carroll and then John Carroll was a young school. And the, the faculty was all in their 20s. And um, we got to know each other very well. There's a tremendous camaraderie. I, I still talk regularly to three or four of them. Mm-hmm. So um, teaching up at, at, at John Carroll was good. Bel Air had a nice existence. My daughters were at a very good school, Hartford Day School. And um, I was comfortable. Um, get, being dean of students there, there, there were lots of you guys complain about some of the rules. Um, there, there are lots of rules that um, sometimes led to some interesting decisions. And there are some times where um, some of the students did some things that I can't even mention here that really made my life miserable. Yeah. You know, there, there would be times where I, my, a whole week of my life would be consumed. Did you come in to John Carroll as the dean of students? Um, no, about um, five years into it, five years it, into it opened up. How did you make the decision that you wanted to become a dean of students? How did that happen? To tell the truth, the, the, the headmaster um, was a fan of mine, and he wanted to expand my curriculum and, and my um, resume. Mm-hmm. And he suggested it, that I think you'll be a good dean of students. And um, I said, I'll give it a shot. So, it sounds like it wasn't wasn't very easy at the I, beginning. I've, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot. It, it was not mistake free, and there were some other challenges. But um, so when I the art history job opened up at Gilman, mm-hmm. okay, um, this is ninety seven, fall of ninety seven, I guess, and I was ready to move on from being dean of students. And um, the art history was six sections. Everybody took it, and that was my course load. Um, and as I came in, I told, I told the students, I'm never, ever going to be dean of students again. Mm-hmm. And then um, in fall of 2002, um, Gilman lost a dean. 
and they couldn't find somebody over the summer. And so I got the call and they said, how would you like to come out of retirement? And I said, okay, I'll do it for a year. And that was 2002. <laughs> what are, uh, so the position of Dean of Students, what are some of the daily challenges or some of the things that you have to work through in that position? Hopefully they're not daily. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully they're few and far between. Far between. Um, I, I guess the one that you see the most in the uh, log is uh, poor decision making, <laughs> where um, it, 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 has, it covers a lot of things. Right. Um, classroom behavior to hall behavior to cafeteria behavior. And tell the truth, that it, it's little stuff, and that's what we're basically dealing with, mm-hmm. you know. Um, every now and then there's something big which we're not going to go into but every now and then there's something big like it was at um, John Carroll but it wasn't on the, it just went on the same level right. it just went on the same kind level. of small things that you have to discipline students and, and get them and, back on track know, and talk to them and you know yeah. get their head in the right place hopefully right. and some people listen and some people are in my office the next day <laughs> What have, what have you really learned over your time as a dean of students? What are some of those things that you feel like you've gotten pretty good at or, or better at over the years? Um, I think the more you do the job, the better you get at understanding the students. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they surprise you. Um, but um, sometimes you can anticipate problems. And I'd rather be proactive than reactive. Um, but, you know, you've, you've got to be careful. <laughs> um, you know, I, I guess with that said, one thing that's happened is, and you guys, I know, I don't know when any students are going to listen to this, but every, everybody talks about and complains when Gilman put in cameras. And one thing that taught me is that what you think and what transpired wasn't necessarily the case, although it looks completely different, mm. you know. And the cameras have, have sometimes shown that and helped help the students more than hurt them. Right. You know, because they are doing something stupid, but not really stupid, and it's really not troublesome. Mm-hmm. But when they told you that's what they were doing, you know, sure, <laughs> you know. Right, right. And in the back of your mind, you really doubt it. Yeah. And then you go go to the camera, and golly gee, he did that, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. no problem. So you can trust them a little bit more from the actual yeah. video evidence. Yeah, yeah, I am learning that sometimes what you think are really good instincts can be wrong. How did you become interested in art history, and how did you start wanting to teach that subject? Was that always something that you enjoyed, art history growing up, or is that something that you found at Virginia, or where did that come from? My um, my mother, as I said, was a teacher. She taught at Bryn Mawr. She taught, well, let me see, history, Latin, Greek, and English. <laughs> um, she was a cultured lady, probably the smartest person I've ever met. Um, and around the house, there was all sorts of books. And, you know, we didn't have the computer, so on a rainy day, I'd just pick up an art book and just start le- leafing through it. Um, and um, I've, I've learned as you go on, some people are visual, um, some aren't. I'm visual. And yeah. um, art fell nicely into that. I think um, my father wanted me to go into the uh, finance world, 
But um, my first finance course at Virginia convinced me that was not a good idea. <laughs> a little dry. Um, and not successful. <laughs> I got out of that real quick. <laughs> Uh, yeah, art history is a really fascinating subject. And we had uh, Sarah Lloyd was on here, and we were really diving into some of the things that she teaches in her class. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, art history major too. But um, what are some things that you guys do in your class that you really enjoy teaching? Maybe some of the pieces or the time periods that you've really kept in your curriculum over the years that you feel the boys really enjoy and you really enjoy teaching. <laughs> I've, I've sort of like, um, obviously, to dissect a painting for symbolism. I, I think um, our, our students seem to like that when all of a sudden something looks very normal, all of a sudden becomes um, a symbol that, oh my goodness, yeah, that's what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can get into a debate, has an art historian, um, professional art historian gone too far with it? Because, you know... Um, Made too many assumptions about yeah. it. And, you know, to stay relevant in art history or something like that, you've got to come up with theories, you know. And all this has been done, so sometimes they're out there, mm-hmm. you know. And I'll do that on purpose. I'll choose some um, paintings that have, been di- that have been dissected, and the dissection is out there. And it's fun to shoot holes in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I find um, the symbolism aspect of it as good as, um, and I think the, the kids like that as well. Um, I, I like paralleling the development of the art, how one style builds on the other style and how um, they are affected, you know. So if you're, let's say, looking at a Renaissance painting, you can hopefully go back to the Greek and Roman statues that we'd studied mm-hmm. or something of that nature. Um, all builds on top of each other. Yeah, and seeing the influences. And then now we're, we're, we're getting into the late 1800s. We'll see art evolve towards um, contemporary art and how it shifts from, uh, you know, an art that is based on buying and selling paintings, you know, where the, where the artist was um, under contract and had to come up with a certain style mm-hmm. or he wouldn't sell it, to where the artists start interpreting art as to um, what they believe is appropriate. You know, we just started realism today. And um, we, we discussed, you know, obviously it's what is real in society, not what is real photographic-wise. So, mm. um, and that's, that's a change in art. You know, you're, you're shifting from a client-based, um, salon-driven academic art Mm-hmm. to an artist coming up and saying, well, this is what I should be doing. Right. And then that's going to become the basis of contemporary art as um, each successive art movements have a different version of what they think art should be. Yeah. yeah. So, Who are some of the realist art, um, artists? Corbet, that, is, Corbet. Probably, is probably the most thing. Millet is another. Um, the Gleaners you're probably familiar with. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So um, Daumier, the third-class carriage, is a wonderful painting. Um, and a good look into industri- how industrial society has um, divided families. But um, It's really looking at the day-to-day life and the mundane that's, that hasn't been covered before or looked at closely. And, and it matches what's going on in Europe at the time. You know, Europe is struggling with what is right in society, the Enlightenment, the philosophs. And then um, you get them examining 
education, you get them examining insane asylums, you get them examining government. And why not examine art? Mm-hmm. You know, so it all follow, falls in step. What is a what is a common Boo Smith art history class look like? Do you usually just put a, a new painting on the board on a given day, or is it more conversational, or how does it really unfold in your class? Well, of course, you got the homework quiz. Okay. Oh, you have a homework you quiz. You have to have the homework quiz. <laughs> and then um, we, we've gotten two projects. One one first first um, quarter, which is now third quarter. Excuse me, my nose itches. Um, it's allergy season. It, no, it, I think I'm in a dentist chair. It only happens when I'm in a dentist chair. <laughs> but, um, no, the uh, I said, where were we? My, my news. Um, we were talking about your art history class and maybe uh, what well, is it common yeah, you, you, after the homework quiz. Quiz. The, the two projects. Okay, the first one was current current affairs mm-hmm. and trying to get people to dial and see art history is not necessarily dead. And that there's something going on, and even in the ancient art, there's still being discoveries made that might be rewriting art history books. And then the second one, um, which has gone really well this year, my students have been sharp as attack on it, is you you make something. Um, you've got a free. It can be photography, it can be video, it can be sculpture, and it's based around the elements and principles of art. Hmm. And um, so therefore, you have to explain how you applied them into what you made. So um, that gives the, the kids a good introduction to the elements and principles other than a textbook knowledge. Um, and, and they have proven to be, I think, worthwhile. And letting the kids see art history as something um, that isn't just graveyard. <laughs> right. And, and then, yes, um, I, I, I will then go into PowerPoints where we'll go through a number of different slides um, what's really helped this year, or last three or four years, is that the image qualities on the internet has just gotten superb. Yeah, I think there's what is it? Google, some some home suite in Google Arts and Culture. Google's Arts and Culture, you can really zoom in and it's yeah. super clear. And they're limited in some of the um, some of the paintings they have, but if you go to most of the major museums, they've done the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, on their museum sites. Yeah, yeah. Now most of them are the National Gallery Art in D.C. Um, all their paintings are on their site and zoomable. You know, and the Met same way. I understand the Louvre supposedly has digitalized their whole collection. Hmm. Um, but um, so you know, when, when I first got to Gilman, we were using slide projectors, and the, and the slides were not all that good, and I. It was hard to stay focused. I'll, I'll have to admit because the images weren't, weren't all that clear. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd, I'd like to think that the fact that you can now go in, you know, like we um, just did um, Watteau's Pilgrimage to Scythera, the legendary island, island love, and you can see a little boy sitting on a quiver of arrows, tugging an old lady's dress. So he got Cupid. You know, I didn't even see that. Nobody could have seen that. Uh, thanks to Gilman, um, I had a trip to Paris. You know, Gilman, oh, really? Gilman is re- very, very good, and please take advantage yeah. of their summer travel programs. I've, they, I've had three wonderful trips on there. But going to Louvre and seeing it in person, I said, wait a second, look at that little twerp. <laughs> There's Cupid, you know? Um, and, and then you, you see paintings that in an art history book, are 
the picture's 20 years old and it's been restored. And that's another area that I like to go into, and I think the kids find it interesting, is restoration of paintings. Um, obviously, Sistine Ceiling and the Last Supper and Renaissance pop into your mind. <laughs> Where is the Last Supper? I've seen the Sistine Ceiling, which it, is amazing. It's in Milan. It's um, in Milan? Yeah, it's in Church of Milan. Did you go there, too? Or um, we, when I went, you can't do this now. Um, I don't think we went to Milan. We went to Florence. But um, Gilman had a trip. It took it every two years, and it was literally six to seven weeks in Europe. Really? And it was a phenomenal trip. We started in England, went all the way through the continent, over to Yugoslavia, oh, excuse me, Croatia, <laughs> then through the Corinthian Canal, um, Greece, cruised the Aegean. Six to seven weeks, wow. Yeah. And, and it was extremely well thought out. And, you know, um, like camp, those are one of the things that is just embedded in my mind. It was, spectac- it was spectacular. And that might have helped me with art history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was telling my kids, let me show you how things change. When we went to the Sistine Ceiling, that was before it was restored. I don't have that good a memory of the Sistine Ceiling because it's seven stories up. And it was dim and dark. And I didn't leave there thinking I'd seen something special. That is a ridiculous and experience. And you go in there, it's just phenomenal. Yeah. You know, and it just shows you how it can change. Where else did you go on your, you said you went on three trips through um, Gilman? T- two to England. Two um, to England. And one, I did a side trip to Amsterdam, to the Reich Museum. Oh, what was that like? Uh, it's, it's, if you into Northern Renaissance and Dutch art, it's the best. Yeah. Um, they have the Night Watch there by Rembrandt, which is his masterpiece. Um, and standing in front of that is, you know, remarkable. You know, it's a huge painting, and you can see all sorts of different things. Amsterdam is where, where I want to go. Yeah. It sounds yeah. like a pretty... It, it is. It's a wonderful city, and um, the Van Gogh Museum is there, and, and that's another spectacular... Did you go there? I went to the Van Gogh Museum. Van Gogh is one of my favorites. Yeah, and um, it, it's an amazing museum. And I think it's the most... Somebody said I think it's the most visited museum in the world, even more than the Louvre. But um, and then um, I took two, two into England. Um, one was a, a countryside one, and the other was focused on London and the museums of London. It didn't hurt that my daughter just happened to be living in England at the time. <laughs> and, and one time she had just had a young child. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So somehow it fit in. I, I don't know why I applied for <laughs> now anyway. Um, you talked a little bit, or you, you mentioned how Gilman has changed since you were a student here, and how you know how it operates now. Are there any other aspects of Gilman School that you feel have changed a lot since your time as a student here? I'm, I'm sure that somebody will uh, will disagree, and, and you're certainly entitled to that. And some people might think that I'm being a Pollyanna, but when, when I came to Gilman in 97, I could pretty much see Gilman when I was here in 70. It had, it had changed a little bit, but the, the interaction and the quality, it, it was still very much a boys' school, you know, a boys' boys' school. Mm-hmm. And um, over the last 20-odd years, um, I, I, we're by no means there, but I see an evolution in Gilman um, you know, when I first came here, the the art show 
was minimal, if not intended. You know, art was not a, only certain people took art. Um, only certain people did drama. You know, so it, was it m- way more athletically focused when you were here? Definitely. That was like the main Definitely. thing with sports, and, and the arts have emerged um, and become accepted. I'm not sure we, whether we've done it recently, but within the last couple of years, we tailgated for the play. You know, and um, you know, you can see the wonderful things that Mr. Connolly's done with the art department, and how if you walk around Gilman, art is everywhere. Um, yeah. That's one of the things that I, I've said it before. I loved when I came here for the first time is all the art on the on the walls. It's yeah. like it's cool that art is celebrated so much here for. For boys, it is, and and the other thing also, um, not not connect that, but we're by no means where we should be, and still need to improve. But we've gone much more tolerant. We've gone much more tolerant. Um, you look around, and and people have been able to find niches, as at least I can see. You know, there, there'll be a group of maybe two or three, but their friends having a good time talking. I, I'm, you know, when I first came here, there was a number of people sitting by themselves. They couldn't find that niche. They they they, they were sort of left out. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I I think an interesting scenario where where um, a, a student was dealing with his identity at Gilman, and it was really 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 difficult for him. And it was a rough four years. And he went off to college and um, transitioned. Um, and he came back maybe five years later, just curious. And I talked to him a little bit, and he said, "Yeah, Mr. Smith, I've been walking around, and I've been noticing things. It's a different school. Hmm. You guys have evolved." So you know, I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely in in my estimation from being here for three and a half years, it's a very accepting place and tolerant yeah. place, and it's continuing to get better in that way. But I, I would agree with you 100. Yeah. percent and, and, and as I said, it really is sort of fun to, to see these people establishing their, their little groups. And sometimes the little groups a long time ago would be working against one another, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And, and today, let them live. Yeah. You know, um, I'm over here, you're over there, you're doing anything, that's great. Right. You know, not looking at them in a different way. When you were here, who were some of the teachers and coaches who, who played a huge impact on you, who really inspired you, or maybe were part of the reason why you wanted to get into teaching and coaching? Um, in wrestling, it was Eddie Brown. Um, he was an excellent wrestling coach who um, was able to connect with his students. And, um, you know, we had tremendous success, and I think a lot of it had to do with Eddie and you know any wrestling coach or any coach has to set examples and has to push a student to do better and in wrestling it's critical mm-hmm. when you're out on that mat you can't not give what do they say 120% I mean it really is yeah, yeah it's and um there's no other Eddie, sport like that Eddie was very good at that he was very good at that um he he could get to you and and really um inspire you when you're about to go out and wrestle you know. What did he teach here, Eddie Brown? Math. Taught math here? He taught math here. Curiously, my sophomore year in math was the best grades I got in Gilman. Oh, oh. 
you know, you know the teacher, you like the teacher, you work for the teacher. Mm -hmm. And um, I almost got 100 that year. <laughs> but anyway, um, there, there are lots of people like that. Um, a guy named Reg Tickner, who the, the Tickner fell when the Tickner Center's about. Um, his son was in my class, and we were best friends in lower school. And Reg was an excellent role model. He was he was also a wrestler and big guy, but um, he he'd call you, he'd call you out, mm -hmm. you know. Um, you're doing something wrong. He'd let you know. Um, you couldn't certainly do that today, but in his office was the board of education in the lower school, and you can imagine what the board of education was all about. <laughs> and the, the the problem with that was because his friend and I were such good friends. He had absolutely no issue of using the Board of Education on me. Not, not that it needed to be at any time. But, and, 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 of course, um, Reddy Finney. You know. you know, he lived the life that he preached, and you saw it and you knew it. And um, he, was, you know, he set the examples, and you wanted to be like Reddy. Mm -hmm. you know? Another wrestler, too. Yeah, another wrestler too. Yeah, yeah. Pretty awesome. Uh, was there was there a dean of students in in your time for discipline? There was Mr. Gamper, Mr. Billy Gam Gamper's father. Yeah, tell me about him because yeah. that's another person. What's I your get name, on. son? <laughs> <laughs> that's another person I want to get on is Mr. Mr. Gamper. But tell me about his dad as a. Well, with with Billy here now, no, Mr. Gamper, um, was was a dean who. You know, went through and you know made sure boys could be boys, but when boys weren't being boys, he let you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, but he was a presence and he was a character, and um, because of his voice, um, it always sounded like a duck. <laughs> and you talk about symbolism. If you go into the gym where his picture is, yeah, I've seen his picture. Have you noticed what's in the background? Is there a duck back there? There's a duck flying in the background. <laughs> That's so, funny. Yeah. Um, so, Boo, I was wondering a little bit about your book recommendation. Every guest that comes on the podcast brings in a book rec, and we were talking a little bit before the podcast. You brought Boys in the Boat. Great, great story. When did you first pick this book up, and why'd you choose it? Um, <laughs> actually, my one of my um, squash players, um, Davis Owen gave it to me for Christmas. And um, I don't think I fully appreciate it until I finished reading the book because um, it's a lot about good coaching. So um, I read, read the book, and what I found in the book is it's, it's about um, an eight-man shell, nine altogether with the coxswain. Um, and it's about the coaching that went into making them Olympic champions. And so you, I don't know whether any of you guys know anything about crew or anybody was in. It's unbelievably demanding. Mm -hmm. And um, sort of like wrestling, you know, you have to go through heck, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, particularly in a match, okay, and, or in, in competition and rowing. By the end, by the end of that sprint, you, they're, they're not, there's nothing left, you know. And the book talked about that, you know, about, um, it talked about, you know, you got eight people in the book, they all got to be in sync. So it talked about teamwork, okay? Mm -hmm. And um, 
then the pictures that I, I picture like Wesman talks about coaching. And um, it, it, the book sort of, I will say, um, reconfirmed a lot of things um, that were part of my life, okay? Um, and in the coaching, they talked about how the coach was innovative, how you did um, certain things a little bit differently, you know, um, and, and became successful. Um, you go back in time, and I'm sure I wasn't the first one, but I was one of the first ones in this area, if not the first one, to run invert offenses. You know, um, nobody had heard of them. Mm -hmm. And that came to me from playing. You know, for some reason or other, my attackman had come up to catch the ball. And so, he, because he's out in front of the goal, he, he starts his dodge from in front of the goal. And I'm, where am I? Mm -hmm. Right. And. You know, all my life in lacrosse, we played behind the goal. Yeah. Said, so you're used to it. Uh, yeah. I said, aha, let's take a midfielder back behind the goal where he does have absolutely no idea yeah. what's going on. And certainly pull an attackman out front. And um, the attackman out front really produced a lot of goals one year because it just hadn't been done before and the defense wasn't ready for it. Hmm. And, um, so, but anyway, they talked about in the book – they talk about coaches, you know, let's, let's doing something different than you did maybe the year before or looking at who is in your boat and then adapting your strategy as to each person in the boat. Yeah, you know, playing to the of, strength of your players. Yeah, a lot of times coaches have their playbook and they just turn to the playbook and they force their people into those plays. Um, at John Carroll, I got to read my playbook each year because I knew I wasn't going to be dealing with the same kids in the same um, situation. And it would start fresh, depending on whether I had a left-handed feeder or a guy I could crank from outside. And reading the boys in the boat and looking at innovations and coaching and things like that and sort of reconfirmed what I'd, I'd like to think I did as a coach. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you, that you applied this book about crew to lacrosse and, and your own coaching. And I think that's where I was introduced to this book is through playing lacrosse because I think it applies, even though it's about crew, it applies to any sport because yeah. just like you said, crew, and I've never rode crew myself, but it's, it's really the ultimate team game. I'd say football is similar, and you said wrestling is, yeah. is similar in a strenuous way, but this – book about crew can be applied to really any sport because it's about coaching it's about teamwork right. innovation yeah you know, um you know after college you start playing club ball and then you start playing masters and grandmasters if you can still walk like hoffy um <laughs> hoffy's not slowing down at all and, and i had two defensemen that i started playing a lot of um ball with and we, we made sure we got on the same masters and grandmasters team and you talk about knowing the player I know you've probably had this in attack when you're playing with two guys that you played with a lot and just playing with those guys for literally 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, we were good together. You know, I, I knew when I knew when he was going to screw up and he knew when I was going to screw up and they were there to cover. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's all about chemistry. Yeah. Um, okay. Here goes Al Brown over his head. He's going to miss it this time. I'm, I'm I'll be there. <laughs> Well, Boo, thank you so much for your book, Rack Boys in the Boat. Um, it's excellent. I would I would double down on that and say I think people should read it, especially if you're involved with sports. It was actually a summer reading one year for the Gilman faculty. Was it? Yeah, yeah. but I, I, as I said, because of Davis gave it to me. I already, yeah.
Um, and, and thank you for coming on to the podcast. It was an awesome time talking to you and uh, hearing a little bit more about your time at, at Gilman and, you know, all of your knowledge from this place and from playing sports and coaching and everything you do here. One thing I didn't ask you about, though, is I, I talked to you about photography at the beginning, but rollerblading is another one of your hobbies that we didn't cover. How'd you, how'd you get into that? How'd you get into rollerblading? I, I, I actually, um, we have a bunch of us. I mean, it goes back to me, another teacher at John Carroll, who'd been playing pond hockey forever. So I'm, I'm a skater. I'm, I'm not a great skater, but we have fun. You know, a, a lot of trash talk and a little bit of hockey. <laughs> and when rollerblades came out, I said, this, this is it. And then as I got older, um, you know, my um, knees and hips, I wanted to make sure I, it, it's low impact. And now that I've got these two metal rods in my back, thanks to the cancer, um, I, I can't do impact, you know. Mm -hmm. I was crossing the street the other day, and somebody sped up. <laughs> you know, I said, wait a second. And I had to sprint. And, oh, did that hurt? You know, just boom, 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 boom. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the rollerblading's good. It's good. I can I can do that. It's out. It, it, you don't get the jarring, and it doesn't affect my rods that much. Yeah, you fly around. You fly around campus. I, I'm slowing down a little bit, which is probably smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, Boo, thanks so much for coming on. It was a great time talking to you. Today. Thank you for giving us the time, and thanks for all you've done. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. It's been Thank fun. You. We'll do it. Thank you, Cesare. Thank you, Cesare. Thank you, Cesare.